If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Here ends the words inspired by our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. In the life of every minister, there are some passages that just stand out and are unforgettable, and they shape that minister's understanding of the heart of the gospel, and this is one of those stories, Peter's dream at Joppa. I've preached on it many times, I even dreamed about it, and every time I hear this story again, I hear something new. First of all, because the imagery of the dream is so vivid, and Peter's way of describing it is so uh, quintessentially Peter. 
so enthusiastically unfiltered. I mean, that's Peter for you, whether he's denying Jesus three times to save his own skin or running around the Gentile city of Joppa doing what no self-respecting Jewish man's man would ever do, namely answering his critics by telling them his dreams. That's just not what guys do. Our story begins when the real Jews, and that would be the fraternity of the circumcised, want to know what on earth Peter is doing hanging out with the fake Jews. Rhymes with fake news. Which means, of course, accepting them. Have you no standards, Peter? Have you no shame? There goes the neighborhood. It's a slippery slope, Peter. Eat with Gentiles. The next thing you know, women will be leading in worship. <laughs> slaves, slaves will demand their freedom. And people who don't know Abraham from Adam will study to become rabbis. In other words, if I, might, if I may borrow from contemporary political rhetoric, these Jesus people want open borders, theological chaos, and the loss of Jewish jobs. Well, we need a big, beautiful wall to keep out the uncircumcised. Peter answers this charge that he's destroying what was once great about Israel by saying that something happened to him while he was praying, and that's an important place to start while he was praying, as if maybe that's a dangerous, even subversive activity. He's already explained this dream once to a Roman centurion named Cornelius in the previous chapter, and he tells the story again in his report to the apostles, because this is no small dream. It's what Native Americans call a big dream, a big nasty dream, but not that kind of nasty, just a theological, nightmare. Something like a picnic blanket is lowered down from heaven and inside it are all sorts of creepy crawly things that no good Jew should touch, much less eat. But Peter is hungry and God says, I'm paraphrasing here, lunch is served. And Peter takes one look and says, to paraphrase again, uh, I think I have lost my appetite. And then he gets kind of preachy Nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. No siree, this is Peter the Eagle Scout Jew. He's got every good conduct medal for righteous eating you can earn. I am kosher boy reporting for service. Of course, God has every reason to give up on him but does not, which makes me wonder if that's not the real message of the Bible. We give up on God. God does not seem to give up on us. And so God says a second time, again, I'm paraphrasing, yes, uh, uh, Peter, I know you did not order this particular lunch, but for your own good, it's the daily special. It's called Gentile Stew. <laughs> again, since why stop paraphrasing now, Peter says, hmm, looks great. I'm sure it's good for me, but you know, I'm watching what I eat these days. You might say I've become a Yahweh-tarian, <laughs> which is a Hebrew pescatarian. And we've got our own Facebook page. And we call out all the haters of God's chosen people who eat pork. And that's when God says, well, I'm not on Facebook, Peter, but get over it. What God has made clean 
you must not call profane. Finally, a third time, and that's when you know it's serious, God offers this sacred picnic disguised as religious heartburn, but Peter, he's still sitting at his childhood table. Dietary aloofness is and has always been a symbol of ethnic aloofness. What I call clean, says God, you must not call profane. Even if their skin is brown or black and there's not a single blonde from Norway in sight, do not turn up your nose at my cooking or at my creation. Poor Peter is just really like us. He's the most like us of anybody. He is what you might call, if there was such a word, a Gentile phobe. And I can relate to this. I've got, I've got a few phobias of my own. As much as I hate to admit it, I am a recovering racist. I am a recovering sexist. I'm a recovering homophobe. I'm a recovering xenophobe. And I'm a recovering anti-Semite. And here's one that will shock you. I am a recovering Republican phobe. Because if you think our president is a kind of stain on the heart of the nation, then I don't know what you call the party that enables him and refuses to stand up to him. The other day I went downtown with Phil Douglas to look at some possible new locations for our weekly vigils for immigration justice. We went first to the new federal building and we went through security and emptied our pockets and locked up our cell phones and and then we went to the office of a DHS agent that Lori and I had met when we first started holding these vigils almost a year and a half ago. And he met us as we only know him in full tactical gear and then apologized that he had to cancel our meeting. Quote, my supervisor told me that if I met you all, it would look like I was endorsing what you were doing. End quote. I replied that we were just looking for information about where we might gather for a worship service every Wednesday at noon to express solidarity with our immigrant sisters and brothers. And he said, well, you need to go across the street to the GSA building, Government Services Administration, and apply for a permit to hold a protest on government property. One more time, although I knew it would not do any good, I told him what Lori and I have told him repeatedly, this is not a protest. But I can tell you we were not welcome there. We were not wanted there. Then I looked up on the wall and saw a smiling portrait of President Trump in the spot where President Obama's portrait used to hang, and I, I have to admit to you, my heart clenched up like a fist. I'm sorry, but I could relate to Peter, because something inside me said, by no means, Lord, for nothing that vile has ever been set on the table of the White House. Then I remembered how separated I am from the people who elected him, how little I understand the people who want to hear what certain politicians are saying. In other words, I failed the test of empathic imagination. I am not blue collar. I have never worried about where my next meal is coming from. 
An illegal immigrant has never taken my job, and I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh all day, or I might turn out to be just like him. Peter and I are both in recovery. Like many of you, I struggle every day with what has been lowered down on something like a sheet in this political moment. I can't touch it. I can't believe we're even living through this nightmare. Why is it that the world's most powerful person makes up insults and tweets them out every day and calls people names like a petulant child and follows only the rules that are advantageous to him and has this obsession with erasing the legacy of his more popular predecessor? This is sadness, pathetic sadness. I just want to wake up from this nightmare and I want to be proud of my country again. And then I hear this voice calling out to me, what I have made clean you must not call profane. You can reject what is evil, Robin, but you must not reject the possibility of redemption. Try to pull up a chair and eat with someone with whom you have nothing in common. Really? I think I'll go through the drive up. Are you asking me to have lunch with a white supremacist? No thanks. I'd rather skewer them on social media than break bread with them in real life. We are all recovering from something. When I say that I'm a recovering sexist, I mean I grew up in the age of Playboy magazine. And so I learned that to be straight male means to accept the objectification of women. I learned from advertising and from the wisdom of the fraternity of my male friends that human sexuality is really just a contest. It's a sport. It's not a profound, sublime, and dangerous mystery. There are winners and losers, and if you're losing, just lie about it like they are all lying about it. When I say that I'm a recovering homophobe, I mean that when I was growing up, the world was kind of essentially binary. There were straight people like me, and there were deviant people who were not straight like me. Homosexual was the word we used in those days with the emphasis on homo. Now that just ain't right, I heard people say about gay people, which is a term I didn't even here till I was in college, and they're all in that same undifferentiated category of creepy, crawly things. When I say that I'm a recovering xenophobe, I mean that as a child I heard this word foreigner pronounced furriner with just enough disdain to make me forget that we're all from someplace else, except for American Indians. They've been here a long time. Maybe they came over on the Bering Strait, but they've been here a long time and that we're all just passing through, and that the earth is not like a nice restaurant where some people get the best tables and others have to sit by the kitchen or be turned away altogether. I mean, since when did we think we could say, hi, I'm white and rich and I'm looking for the best table you have for two, and here's $50,000, now pretend my kid's an athlete, and sign them up for something at Harvard they've never done, or heaven forbid they might end up at community college and marry a plumber. By no means, Lord, for nothing that profane has ever been added to our family tree. 
When I'm in the airport and I see a person who looks Muslim or a woman in hijab, I often think to myself, now Robin, don't even think about whether that person is actually more likely to be a terrorist, thereby confirming that's exactly what I'm thinking. When I say that I'm a recovering anti-Semite, I mean that Christian triumphalism was shot through my religious tradition growing up and I soaked it up. I was taught that all scribes and all Pharisees were self-righteous and hypocritical while all the disciples of Jesus were humble and compassionate and knew the Messiah when they saw him. But when I say that I'm a recovering racist, I mean that although you'll never hear an overtly racist remark from me, that does not mean that the more subtle and subliminal racism of American culture has not soaked into my bones. It is deep inside all of us. And one last phobia I want to confess to this morning I share with the majority of church people, neophobia. That's the fear of new things. We're all recovering neophobes. The seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> Change is difficult. People have different ideas about what constitutes sacred music, don't you know? which is why the worst church fights are often about music. But when music is offered as a gift to God, not just as a performance, it may be to our liking or not to our liking, but it is never profane. The worst musical performance I ever heard in church is still better than the lies with which we are surrounded every day. And if that music was offered as an offering, then that offering is acceptable. I'm sure that when the early Jesus people started eating with Gentiles, the keepers of the tradition said, well, things aren't the same in Joppa these days. But at that same moment, other people were saying joyfully with a different tone of voice, you know, things just aren't the same in Joppa these days. Every time we make progress and welcome more people to the table, some people say, I really preferred my little table for two, where, you know, I didn't have to pass things around and eat food I didn't know I liked and, and learn a whole different language. When the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln, I'm sure there were people in the South that said, there goes the neighborhood. Things just aren't the same in the Confederacy these days. But other people would have said it differently. Things aren't the same in the Confederacy these days. Is it true what they say? Is it true that Mr. Lincoln says we're free? Not long ago when same-sex marriage became legal in Oklahoma, despite the best efforts of the keepers of the so-called traditional view of marriage, there were lots of people in churches that said, oh, things aren't the same in matrimony these days. But at that very moment, others, some of whom drove to Mayflower to be married to the person they loved and had been living with 15, 20, 30 years, they said it joyfully. Things aren't the same in matrimony these days. As of today, the Supreme Court says we can get married too. Now, there are dark clouds, dark, dark clouds on the horizon right now for women's reproductive justice. And we have to take this seriously. As of this week, if you're a 13-year-old girl living in Alabama, or now Missouri, and your stepfather rapes and impregnates you, you will have that child. 
says the state that controls your womb. And if a doctor helps you end that pregnancy, she will go to jail for a hundred years. What century are we living in? Things are not the same in Joppa these days, but not all the news is good news. And that's why Peter's dream at Joppa is needed now more than ever. And here's the line that jumped off the page for me, quote, the spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. Really, no distinction? The world runs on distinction. Make no distinction? Does that mean that the mostly male anti-abortion lawmakers need to imagine they are that 13-year-old girl? Or she is their daughter or granddaughter and then vote as if there is indeed no distinction between them and us? Maybe. Do I think Roe v. Wade is destined to be overturned? Yes, I do. I hope I'm wrong, but I think it will be. And do I think we're going to have to fight these battles all over again? Yes, I do. So get ready. Do I think every church in Oklahoma will be on the side of taking this most agonizing of decisions away from the woman who is the only one who should ever make it? No, this one won't. I will be pro-choice until the day I die. And this church will try hard as it is for us sometimes not to turn our noses up at anybody and say, can't touch that. We can say if you don't believe abortion is ever moral under any circumstances, then under no circumstances should you ever have an abortion. But don't make that decision for every woman in every situation in which she might find herself pregnant. It's just like gay marriage. If you don't believe in it, just don't go out and marry a gay person. <laughs> just say no. We need this big dream back, and some people out there are going to call it a big nasty dream, and they'll condemn us all to hell. That's okay. Certain things and certain people, they say, need to be kept apart because that's how God wants it. Have they read Acts 11? God said, what I have made clean you must not call profane. What did Peter say? I make no distinction between them and us. Both of these things cannot be right. And going forward, the church needs to clear its throat and say, the devil is in the details of false equivalency. We are turning up our noses at creation itself. And God says, pull up a chair or you will soon find yourself without a table. We are turning up our noses at a living wage. And God says, pull up a chair or the poor will soon come to visit your house and they will not knock. We are turning up our noses at basic human decency and good manners and giving people the benefit of the doubt and God says, pull up a chair or it will be every man and woman for him or herself. And we don't wanna live in that world. Meanwhile, that sheet with the creepy crawly things, it's going to get lowered down into each of our lives again and again, and we're going to have to make a decision. If I turn up my nose at what I believe to be profane, then who is to say that I will not end up 
in someone else's sheet of creepy crawly things, sacred and profane as in the eye of the beholder. Or what if it's true? Maybe, just perhaps, what if it's true that either all of us matter or none of us do? What if that's true? Either all of us matter or none of us do. I think it's true. Do you? If you do, then let the people say, Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.